as we jump into this series on 1 Samuel, I, I can't tell you how excited I am about this book. Um, you know, I, one of the things I love about the Word of God is it is intensely and unapologetically real. Um, oftentimes when I've heard people over the years that are unfamiliar with the Bible, they think it's something about this really high ideal, and, and there is that element to it, but they don't think it's connected to real life. And I, what I love about the Bible is that it presents life raw. It doesn't try to apologize for it, doesn't gloss it over, doesn't attempt to excuse it or uh, try to find a way around it. It brings life to us where we are at. And that's what I love about God. I mean, sometimes we think that, oh, God doesn't care about my situation. No, God does, and he cares about it deeply, and he knows your struggles. He knows what you're going through. He knows everything about you, and he still will work his will no matter what has happened to you or what you have done. I mean, we, we, we think that if we just live life right, God is going to keep us and let us be okay. We're not going to have any problems. And that's wrong. It's a wrong understanding. I mean, you can do everything right and still have something go wrong. And we have to, to keep that in mind as we're thinking of the scriptures. I was talking to someone uh, just this uh, past week, and they were, they were saying how they had helped all these people over the years and been in ministry, and suddenly their wife had come to them and said, I don't love you anymore. I don't know if I ever did. That's tough. Where's God in the middle of all that? And he's asking himself, did I do something? I, I've worked with these people who have totally destroyed their lives, and yet I've tried to love my wife and take care of my family, and yet she's still going to turn away? It's like, it doesn't always work that way, brother. Sometimes people will do what their sinful lives want, want to do, and, and it's not dependent on you. Sometimes it's the, the, the problems that we have are based on our actions and there are consequences for our choices. And there are other times that things just happen to us that we didn't choose. What do you, I mean, how do we act toward that? How do we respond? What do we do when someone comes to us and they say, by the way, you have cancer and only a few months to live? Or you hear your doorbell at one in the morning and it's, and it's your worst nightmare as you see a police officer standing at the door saying, I'm sorry, sir, is this your daughter? But uh, she's been in a car accident and she didn't make it. Where is God in the midst of that? When, when your life just seems to be shattered and all it just goes down into pieces and you see the shards of your life right there, where is God in the middle of all that? You know, he's there. I mean, you might have been a person that says, I've blown it, I've messed up, I have turned and I've indulged in all these kinds of sins in my life and God is done with me. No, he's not. See, God is a hopeful God. He is the God of hope, and our God is the God of second chances, and he's the God that gives you turns. That God is the God who will totally restore, renew, and transform your life. And he will take those shards of pieces, and he will rebuild it into a beautiful mosaic and a picture of his glory. And that's what 1 Samuel is about. It's about this God who takes our life when it's in pieces and rebuilds it. And he works with messy people, by the way. And this is a messy book. When we originally were, putting, uh, were just looking at this book and talking about it as, as a preaching team, we were walking through it, and we had this kind of working title, which was Life is Messy. And the more we talked about it, we're like, it's not just about a messy life. It's about shattered lives. And yet God working his purposes through it. I mean, we're going to see about people's messy families. We're going to see about people that had messy religion. We're going to see about messy rulers. And, and just people whose lives and their choices caused the pieces of their life to break into 
thousands of pieces, and yet how God still rebuilds, transforms, and accomplishes purposes through it. And I invite us all to journey through this book together and and allow me to be your guide as we explore the truths of God's Word and we open it together, as well as open up our hearts for all that God wants to show us and work within us for His glory and our joy. Let's pray, though, and ask for His blessing on our message time. Father, we are thankful that you are not just the God of hope, but the God of truth, but you're the real God, the God who speaks to us where we are. And Lord, we ask that you speak to us as we open up your word and digest the truths therein. And we have fertile hearts, receptive to what it is that you have for us. That we might go forth transformed and increasing in joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump in to this book. Now, before we actually really get into it, I want to get a little background uh, before we go any further. This book originally was written in Hebrew. It wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And it actually, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel actually composed one book originally. It wasn't until the, uh, the first translators of the Bible that took it out of Hebrew into the Greek language, which is known, uh, especially the Old Testament, is known as the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is known as the Septuagint. And the, the translators of that decided to divide this book, very wonderful book. And we don't know who the author of it is. Some people think it's Samuel, but the reality is, is it actually covers about a 135-year period of time from beginning to end. So not one person could have written it um, at that time. And it's chronicling three basic characters. Uh, the characters of Samuel, who is uh, known as the last judge in Israel's history. And then we have the first king, the first, first monarch in Israel's history, a guy named Saul. And then from there, we also learn about the great King David, who is known as the man after God's own heart. And so this book is focusing on episodes in these individuals' lives. Now, that's, not, that's a little bit of the background um, to it. And its book comes, uh, comes about as the end of the period of Judges. Now, for those of you who don't know, Judges is the, the period of time after Israel had come into the Promised Land under the, uh, under the authority of the leadership of Joshua, who was Moses' successor. And he led them into conquer this promised land. They had conquered the land, and they were dispersing throughout, but they didn't have one centralized ruler. Um, and matter of fact, there's a theme throughout the book of Judges that after the people had come into the promised land, they'd been brought out of the wilderness, and even before that, brought out of slavery in Egypt, that they, they're living in the promised land, but they begin to get comfortable, and they start doing whatever they want. As a matter of fact, there's a theme Throughout the book of Judges, four times, in Judges 17, 18, 19, and then 21, it says, time and time again, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Meaning that everybody became their own authority. There wasn't like a government. There's just people doing whatever they wanted to do. They worshiped God however they wanted to do it, whether it was right or whether it was wrong. They didn't care. They kind of put aside the Torah. They did whatever they wanted to do and played fast and loose with God's word. And so these judges, though, God would raise up, and they were more like military leaders that were there to help judge and lead Israel during uh, very difficult circumstances when armies would be coming and getting ready to attack and annihilate this, this uh, fledgling nation. And these leaders would, would raise up to, in, in, in essence, judge and lead Israel during this very difficult time. But finally, the Israelites got tired of just having these judges. They wanted to be like the nations around them, so they demanded a king. And God acquiesces to their request and eventually gives them a king and all of the problems that come with it. He warns them about it because he, they're basically saying to him, God, we don't want your leadership anymore. 
We want an earthly ruler like the people around us. We want to be like everybody else. God says, here you go. This is what you're going you're gonna to deal with. Now, this book is transitioning, or a tra- um, is a transitional book between that period of Judges and the ushering in of that time of the kings. And Samuel is the last of the Judges. And he is the one that God chooses to anoint the beginning or kick off the monarchy of Israel with King Saul. And so this episode that we enter into, this first scene, it's a, it's a baby story. It's a story of of Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel. And we learn about Hannah's piety. Now, as we're looking into Hannah, we're going to see that this is a woman who is hurting tremendously. That she is really, really struggling. And we, we can see this from different parts of her life. And we need to see as we look at her life, and we see it starts off that uh, it starts off not just with her, but her husband Elkanah. Now, Elkanah seems like a good guy. Um, he's, he's wealthy. He has some type of uh, affluence and standing within the society. We are given the fact that we're given the names of the generations that are before him it means that he had some type of upstanding uh, uh, authority or status within the society, and his lineage goes back, which is a big deal in that culture. And he is going to the tabernacle at that time. Uh, the Israelites had had this traveling tent of meeting that became some, a semi-permanent structure in this uh, town of Shiloh. And the Israelites would come and they would worship at this tabernacle time and time again. And we see him going up yearly to do this. So he's a pious man. And he's even giving the sacrifice. And he's trying to lead his family. But it was imperative during that culture that he would produce, especially as a man of upstanding member of, of society and a man of status, that he would produce a male heir. In that culture, it was essential and imperative that he would have a male child because if he did not, then he would lose his entire, what was called, his house. Not just his building, but everything he'd worked for, all of his land, all of his, his servants, everybody that he was taking care of. He would lose his name in Israel. And in that culture, your name had a huge deal. And so it was imperative that when he got married, that his wife would produce an, a child. Now, obviously, they didn't have modern technology and modern science where you could have either, you don't know who's at fault and, uh, or who has the physical difficulty in reproducing, and it was the woman who was often blamed. And in this, call, this, this certain context, it was her body that wasn't producing. It was because God had closed her womb. And so she enters into this marriage, and we see that the text starts off with her in this marriage to Elkanah. And I'd invite you to look with me in verse 2. It says that he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, it's interesting. In Hebrew, you can't really see this in English, but it introduces what's called an A-B-B-A. It's called a chiasm. In Hebrew, meaning it's a point of emphasis. He starts off addressing Hannah, then Penina, Penina, then Hannah. And he's drawing attention to a conflict that's going on. That's the tension in the story to show that it's about something going on in this marriage. That God had this, uh, that Elkanah had this wife. And this wife was Hannah. And that's why she's mentioned first. In essence, she's the first wife. And he says, then he took a second wife. And then it says, why? Because Hannah, or first it starts off Hannah, Penina, and then Penina had children. Hannah didn't have children. So the reason that he took the second wife is because his first wife couldn't produce kids. And he's, he's having a hard time because it was imperative. He had to have a male son. 
And because she couldn't produce that male child, he took a second wife. And I can't imagine the hurt. I mean, it's not like a, a struggle that no one could see. The whole community could see this struggle that she had. And she knew it too. And can you imagine the feeling that she had, the feelings of inadequacy, the feelings of hopelessness, and to see the pain of her husband going to take another woman as wife, and then to have this woman provoke her all the time after she started having kids. The feeling of loneliness, the feeling of helplessness, and the feeling of worthlessness and being useless and her body not doing what it was supposed to do. You ever had a feeling like that? Maybe you were worthless. Maybe you felt like you've been alienated and it's painful to see what's going on around you. But see, the cool thing about this story is that God has included it for us because God knows our hurts. See, this, this uh, God knows our hurts. He's intimately familiar with them. And, and this book not only draws out hurts and, and the hope that we have and how God meets it, but he shows a divine purpose and something for teaching and preaching that we can see and apply to our lives. But we can see here that God knows our hurts. That's the first thing that I want you to write down within your notes. Realize that God knows our hurts. God knows your hurts. Just like he knew Hannah's, he knows yours. He's intimately familiar with your struggles and what you're going through. Sometimes we think that God's so far away and he doesn't care and he's not interacting. And when we call call out to him, he's not willing to listen to us. But God knows what's going on in your life. And he doesn't just know your hurts. He knows what caused those hurts. Sometimes we think that, our, that God is too busy or he's too great to deal with our small problems. Let me tell you, even your big problems are small in the sight of God. They're small in the sight of God. But he knows our hurts. And he knows how these hurts came about too. He understands, the, first of all, that it's because of a difficult situation. That's what she was facing. She was in a difficult situation. She's in a polygamous marriage. That's not God's ideal. It wasn't unheard of in the ancient world. We see that it happened with Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Hagar. Uh, we see that it happened with Solomon as he's using it for political advantages and means. And we see it happening sometimes, uh, several times with the patriarchs. But you know what? It was never God's ideal or his intent. As we see in Genesis chapter 2. As a matter of fact, we see disastrous consequences happening in almost every single instance. So it's not God's ideal. That's what's happening. But yet she's in the middle of this. And sometimes we think, okay, God, it's been blown up. All these things have happened to me. You're not going to hear me because of choices that others have made. Or I feel like a victim. Or I've been hurt. Or I'm worthless. And yet I I feel like you're done with me. You allowed this to happen to me. I, I was reading this article recently um, through this website. It's called Fight the New Drug. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's, it's a secular website, and it's battling and seeing the evils and, uh, of pornography and what it does to people. And they highlight these articles about individuals that have been involved uh, and the terrors and the horrors and, and what has been going on because, because pornography is just an illusion. It's a demonic illusion that gets you to think that you're in control of different things. And this one woman talks about how she was raised. She was a pastor's daughter. And how she had been raped when she was 17 years old. And she thought God was done with her. And next thing you know, she's in the middle of the uh, pornographic industry. She was at a party. Someone had mentioned something. She said she'd do it. God was done with her anyway. So she engaged in that lifestyle. And it totally ruined her life. And by God's grace, though, he wasn't done with her. And he saved her and brought her out of it. And now she's reaching out to other women who are caught in that lie. 
But she said, I thought God was done with me because of what had been done to me, that he would allow that to happen. And I thought it was over and done with. But see, God knows the difficult situations in which we find ourselves. He knows that with your kids. He knows that with your spouse. He knows that with your finances. He knows that with your education. He knows that with your career. He knows the difficult situation that you find yourself in because God is a God who cares about the intimate and intrinsic details of your life. He he did with Hannah. But that wasn't the only thing. I mean, she was in a difficult situation, but she also had to deal with her rival. The word literally there, it means troubler. This is Penina. Now, Penina, Penina has a very hard time because Hannah's the, the first wife, and Elkanah, every time he would go to bring the sacrifice, I mean, that, the highlight of these festivals, this, this, uh, this holy convocation, would be the sacrifice time. And then the one who would get brought his offering, if it was a voluntary offering, would be able to take a portion of that sacrifice and feed it to all those who attended with him. And so he gives, and you would give it uh, portions based on status. The bigger the portion, the more that you were loved and valued. You see actually this in the book of Genesis with Joseph when he is with his brothers and they are come to visit him in Egypt and he gives it to his, his full brother because remember most of them were half brothers but he gives it to his full brother Benjamin. He gives him a, almost a triple portion than everybody else. Something that we're a little bit different than everybody else but I'm, I'm honoring you and showing you this although they didn't know that until later. But see, we see that Elkanah is showing that his love for his wife, and he's saying, I'm giving you a double portion, and Penina, though you've given me all these kids, I'm I'm giving you a smaller portion. And can you imagine how much that irritated Penina? What had, look what I have done for you, Elkanah. And she's not going to talk like that to her husband. She's fearful. So who's she go after? She's going after Hannah. I hate you, Hannah. I can't stand what you mean to my husband. I've done this. You've done nothing. You don't have any kids. And how do you think that made her feel? You ever had someone that you've had to interact with that's just a jerk? See, we have to deal with distressing people. Not just difficult situations, but God knows that our hurts are sometimes caused by distressing people. You have any distressing people in your life? People that come alongside you and they just know how to push your buttons. They know how to irritate you. They know how to get to you. They know how to hit that one sore point or thing that you did that really just hurt and you've apologized for it or you've done something or maybe you've not done something and yet they keep bringing it up to you. It's a hurt. We've often said and we've heard that expression here in America and I don't know if you have that in Africa or in Asia but here, growing up as children, we have a, a thing that you learn on the playground. Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words or names, wow, some of you have some <laughs> names, words, I, what I heard, but names will never hurt me. But that's not true. Names do hurt. Words hurt. Many of us carry burdens and scars from things that have been said to us over the years. Some even decades. Sometimes 40, 50, 60 years ago and we can still hear the word of that person saying it to our heart that we're worthless. Or you're terrible. You'll never amount to anything. You're never going to be a good father. You're never going to be a good dad. You're never going to be a good worker. You're never going to amount to anything in society. Your parents don't love you. No one cares for you. 
We have those people. And no matter how much we try to appease them, how much we try to reason with them, there's no appeasing them. Nothing helps. Nothing that we do. And they continue on because they have that power of definition and they will keep that and you in that place. And you have to learn how to let that bounce off and deal with that and understand if what they're saying is true or not because the reality is, is what they say is really meaningless. It's how we live and understand ourselves in the very presence of God. We live before the audience of one. But we have to understand that these hurts and where they come from. And here, it comes from difficult situations and it comes from distressing people. It also comes as a result of deep disappointment. And we learn that she wanted to have a baby, but God closed her womb. We don't know if she understood that. Probably not. She just wanted to have a baby. It was one of the most innate and natural desires that God had ever given to a woman. Now, there are some women who don't have that desire. They either have the gift of singleness or the fall has affected them in such a way that they, they don't want that. And we have to learn to put those, those uh, deadly desires to death. I mean, this is the natural thing that God has given and a want. It's not something that was perverse that she wanted, not something illicit. She wanted a baby. Everything within her wanted that baby and wanted that child, and it was a deep desire. Have you ever had a deep desire that you felt God had given? And I'm not talking about a fallen desire that has been corrupted. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a deep desire that you believe God has given you that is good and natural, and yet no matter how much you try, it doesn't seem to be there. And there's a hurt, a pain that comes with it. See, God knows that. And he's working still in your life despite it. She had a deep disappointment. And she also dealt with what I call a well-intentioned dragon. I'm not talking about a literal dragon now. I'm talking about a well-intentioned dragon. Now, what's a well-intentioned dragon? A well-intentioned dragon is someone who cares and who says something to you, but they don't know the full situation, and they say something dumb. You ever had that? Um, anybody who's married and it's a man needs to raise their hand <laughs> because that is exactly what her husband did. He, he comes to her and tries to talk with her, doesn't he? And he says, honey, I know you're crying. And, and he sees his wife crying and, and as men, we want to fix it. Right? You ever had that happen, guys? You see your wife crying and you're like, oh, honey, it's going to be okay. And she's like, I want a baby. And he knows that. And he comes to her and he says, honey, aren't I worth more than 10 sons? Okay, that was a dumb thing to say. That's a, that's, a dumb, that's a dumb guy. I mean, guys were dense. And it's exactly what's going on in this passage. This is a guy who's not paying attention to the needs of his wife and doesn't understand. And he's well-intentioned. And the same goes with Eli. I mean, Eli, who's the priest, who's serving at the door of the tabernacle, he's not engaging in the feast that was going on. His health wasn't very good. He's probably sitting by the door. And he is used to seeing people coming in uh, that, are, that have had a little too much to eat and a little too much to drink. And she comes in. She's broken. Matter of fact, the, the words that are in Hebrew are there is she's like shaking. She, her sorrow is so great. She's just pouring her heart out to God. Her lips are moving. And he's thinking from past experience, this woman's drunk. And she's in church. Are you kidding me? Woman, put away your alcohol, your, your wine away from you. How long are you going to keep doing this? And, and she, respo- or she responds, Lord. I mean, she says, sir, I am not. I'm not, that's not, I'm not drunk. I'm broken. I am broken. 
But see, he made a misjudgment. And again, it just really further exacerbated his situation. He's like, I can't even come to church. And the pastor can't even understand where I'm at. What is going on? It's a well-intentioned dragon right there. This is a guy that had a good intention. He wanted the purity of God's temple, and he couldn't see this woman's hurt. And see, we're going to encounter people like this, people that are going to say well-meaning things. They, they intend well. They try to say something nice to encourage us. But the reality is, is their words end up hurting more than they help. You ever had that? You ever had someone say that to you? You're going through a hard time, and they, they say something. They, they, they just try to get you to ignore it, and they want you to move on, or they try to highlight something even worse than yours, trying to make you feel better. And it's just made you feel worse because then you feel guilty for feeling that way of knowing other people suffer in this great way or, or you're dealing with this and you don't feel like you should be. See, that's, where, that's what I love about God's word. God presents, these are the people that we face on a daily basis. But yet it shows us a way through that God was still working in and through her. And, and this woman, I mean, you ask yourself, how would I act? How would I respond if I was Hannah? What would I do? I mean, I think that many of us, we have to resist the temptation to take matters into our own hands. See, the reality is, is that many of us face situations where, and here, God brought this situation, by the way. He's the one who closed her womb. And we think that if something's not happening the way that we believe God should be working, we take matters into our own hands because God's not on our timetable. We've all done this. And we see it throughout Scripture. You're seeing that happen time and time again. And we need to resist taking matters into our own hands. We need to resist when we are tempted to dull our pain. When we want to drown our sorrows. When we just not want to think about it. And Hannah could have done that. And that's why I believe that, again, Eli thought she'd been drinking. And thinking that she was completely sloshed. Being in the temple. And she could have done that. And we know people that do. When they face a trial or situation or a difficulty, they want to just forget about it. They'll take pills. They'll just totally drink themselves into oblivion. Maybe they'll just start immersing themselves in in entertainment. Or maybe they'll just start uh, just eating and eating and eating, trying to find some sort of comfort for the aching in their souls. And we have to resist that temptation because we all have a desire to try to cope and we want to, we're tempted to dull our pain. But she didn't do that. She went to God with all of the anguish and anxiety and pain within her. But see, we're all going to face that temptation and we must resist that temptation to dull our pain. And we need to resist when we're trying and God doesn't seem to listen. You ever had that? You've been trying, you've been trying to do it right, and doing it right, doing it right, doing it right, and still nothing seems to be going your way. See, she kept coming up. How how often was she coming to the temple with Elkanah? Year after year. After year. After year. After year. And she's dealing with Penina every single time. I mean, I imagine she tried to keep her distance from Penina as much as she could when they were back home. But here, close quarters, you didn't have an opportunity to get away. She has to deal with this woman every single time. And she's like, God, I'm trying. Why aren't you listening? God, I'm doing it right. I'm not responding. I'm not engaging in this kind of sin. I am doing it right, God. And then we want to take, we're going to say, God, forget you. You're not doing it the way that I want you to do. I'm going to take matters into my own hands now. The reality is we can't. We have to, that's where we have to come back and our trust in God must be even deeper. We have to really, truly trust 
in the Lord and not give in to that temptation to take matters into our own hands. I think of the example of Abraham and Hagar. Abraham had take matters into his own hands. God has given him a promise. He said, I'm going to give you, Abraham, a descendant that comes from your own body. And he's going to be the one that's going through whom all the world is going to be blessed. And, God, and Abraham's like, okay, Lord. And he looks at his wife, Sarai, and he's like, I don't know how this is going to happen, God. She's well past the time of childbearing. I can still reproduce, but she's done. Years go by. He's like, God, how are you going to do this? The only, the only uh, descendant that I have that could probably take over is Eleazar of Damascus. He's not even of my own house. I'm going to give him everything? God, what about your promise to me? Well, God's not answering. Maybe he wants me to do something about it. What do you think, Sarai? I, th- I think that you should you take my maidservant, Hagar. We can have kids by her. And when, when it's time to give birth, she can give birth. She can sit on me and give birth. And it's like, I'm giving birth and it'll be my child. And God says, no. He did. That's what he does. He takes Hagar as his wife. And God's like, no, you idiot. That's in the Travis Fleming version. You didn't do what I told you to do. You weren't trusting in me. You took matters into your own hands. You didn't wait on me. So we have to wait on God. And we also have to continue on when we're tired and we don't want to go on. We have to resist that temptation to take matters into our own hands when we're tired and we don't want to go on and do it anymore. We have to wait on God. I'm reminded of King Saul. I don't know if you remember the, the story of King Saul with the, the, the Hivites. The, the Hivites were, are actually right on the border of Israel getting ready to attack. And he is told by Samuel that uh, he needed to wait seven days. And then Samuel would come and he would offer the sacrifice. And they would have God's blessing before they would enter into war. And so he waits and he waits and he waits. And he sees the people starting to panic the army's right at the door. And the more that every day passes, the, his people get more and more panicky. And they're pressuring him, when are we going to go? When are we going to go? When are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? And he's saying, wait on Samuel. Wait on Samuel. Wait on Samuel. Seven days comes. It's the, almost the end of the day. And he's like, where's Samuel? I don't know. We've got to do this. We've got to go. It's go time. Saul, it's go time. They're right at the door. Saul's so like, okay, 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 okay. Hey, bring me the sacrifice. I'll offer the sacrifice. Let's do this thing. So he offers a sacrifice. As the sacrifice is being offered, Samuel shows up. Samuel's like, he sees the smoke. What have you done? You didn't wait. You took matters into your own hands. You know what? God's judging you for that. God has rejected your kingdom. Your kingdom would have continued on forever. But because of that, God has rejected you and is now seeking a man after his own heart. Because God, to God, obedience is better than sacrifice. See, he took matters into his own hands. We cannot, we must resist Doing that as, an, as those who, are, are, uh, who have been in this country for a period of time, you've grown up here, there's something about us that we want to take matters into our own hands. We have this very independent spirit about ourselves that we can do it. We can find a way. The problem is that sometimes we want to find our way but not God's way. We have to wait on God and resist that temptation even when we're tired and we don't want to go on. And when we do try to take matters into our hands, we have to understand the trouble that it will cause if we do so. There will be trouble. If you take matters into your own hands, there's going to be consequences that you can't see and you don't realize. With Abraham and Hagar, there was a consequence. There was a child, Ishmael. And then eventually there came a child with Sarah named Isaac. And these two, I mean, and they, uh, there was animosity between the, the wives, 
to the point where Sarah said, you got to get him out of here. He's jeopardizing my inheritance of my son. And not only that, it ended up setting up not just conflict where she had to finally leave, but it perpetuated on for generations that it's even continuing on to this day with their descendants. All because he took matters into his own hands. And even with the episode that I just referred to with Saul, he lost his kingdom. That was trouble. He took matters into his own hands and there was a consequence. He lost his kingdom. What are you tempted to take on right now? And I guarantee it's going to have a consequence that, you're just, it's, that you didn't intend. See, God's saying, wait, 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 trust, trust, trust. That doesn't mean that we don't act when, he, when we need to be obedient to do what he wants us to do. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying is, is that we need to wait on him and realize that if we do take matters into our own hands, then it's going to cause trouble. Now, rather than take matters into our own hands, we need to rely on God even when he appears hidden. Rely on God even when he appears hidden. Have you ever had a moment where you feel like he wasn't there? I'm sure that's how Hannah felt, again, day after day, year after year. And yet, what does she do? Even after the feast, after all the celebration, after they've eaten and drunk, she gets up when everybody else is sleeping. She goes to the tabernacle. And she pours out her heart on to God. She relied on God still. In the midst of that, she's calling out unto him. She relied on him even when it appeared that God was hidden. Now, I want us to look at that. After she interacts with him, because remember, Eli says that she thinks she's drunk because she's moving her lips, but yet no words are coming out. And then uh, after he accuses her of being drunk, she responds in verse 15. Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. See, when we rely on God and pour out our heart to Him, we see that this reliance restores our trust. Restores our trust. Because she pours it out to Him, and how does Eli respond? Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to Him. She says, in essence, God has heard my request. It restored her trust. After she had poured out, she had wept bitterly before the Lord. It restored her trust in him. I don't know if you've ever had that. Something where you've had so much anxiety build up that you finally just, you started voicing it all to God. And as soon as you did so, there's this enormous relief. You ever had that? It's almost as if God was saying to you, I've been waiting for you to say that. I've been waiting for you to voice it. I've been waiting for you just to admit it. And it restores our trust that he's there and he's working. See, when we do that, this reliance totally restores our trust. Why? Because our reliance releases our problems to God. It it gives them over. In essence, it's taking off that burden and laying them onto God. I'm reminded of this story that I, I once heard about these neighbors, John and Paul. Now, John was always uh, outside, and he noticed that uh, as he was working in the yard, that Paul would come home every night after work, and he would stop at the front tree in his, in his yard, and he would put his hand on it, and he would lean just for a minute or two, 
And uh, then he would, he would he'd, he'd drop his hand and he'd breathe deeply and he'd walk in his house. And, and he's like, at first he's like, oh, he just must be had a hard day. But he noticed he did this day after day after day after day. And he thought, why does he go up and put his hand on the tree? So even when uh, he wasn't there, Paul wasn't there, John would come over and he'd look at the tree. He wanted to know if there was something on the tree. What was going on with this tree? And he said, saw him do it day after day. And then one morning he gets up and he sees that he's even doing it in the morning. He's leaning on the tree in the morning. And then uh, he walks away, and he's determined now to find out what it is with what is it with this tree. So he makes sure that he's outside when uh, when Paul's on his way home. And Paul is, leans up at the tree, and he leans like he always has. And John's like, "Hey, hey, Paul, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Hey, uh, I've been noticing something. Forgive me. I, I'm a little curious, but you know, I've been watching you when you come home day after day, and you." You lean on this tree. What is up with this tree, brother? And he's like, well, I have a stressful job. And uh, when I come home, I don't want to bring it home to my family. So I put them on the tree. And I lay out my, all my problems there. And when I go in the house, I don't have any of those problems with me. And I get up in the morning and I pick them up again. And I go on and I do my work. Now, you know, it's God. We're not laying ours on a tree, <laughs> We are to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And when we release those problems to God, there's a relief. I don't have to deal with them anymore. You ever had a situation that you're facing, it's really stressful, and then the person who really knew what was going on showed up, and you suddenly were, oh, good, now they're here. They can handle it. I mean, I even see that with my, my daughter. Yesterday when we went to the uh, Remy banquet, my daughter's texting us, when are you going to be home? When are you going to be home? She's watching the kids. When are you going to be home? Ugh. Time and time again. When are you going to be home? When are you going to be home? And it's like when we walk in the door, there's this, ah, I'm not in charge anymore. I like that. You know, and there's, when we give our problems over to God, there's this, they're not my problem anymore. God's got them. We release our problems to God. And you know what? It relieves our stress. And that's interesting. In the text, it says that she goes forth, that she leaves from his presence. And it says, the woman went her way and ate in verse 18, and her face was no longer sad. It, it took her stress away. God had taken her stress away. Remember that commercial from the, uh, the 80s? Calgon, take my stress away. Some people are like, I was born in the 90s. Well, let us reminisce who've been around and older than dirt. Um, it relieves our stress. That's why, as we even read in the scripture during our corporate prayer time, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Because it relieves our stress. And you know what's interesting? They've actually proven this scientifically. I don't know if you've seen this or not, that people that pray actually have less stress. It's, it's scientifically proven. Because it lays our anxieties before God. And God is saying, cast all, all your anxieties on me because I care for you. See, God cares. He cares about what you're going through. He knows the difficult situation. He knows those, those distressing people that you deal with. He knows those deep desires that you have. And he wants you to come to him and rely on him and give it all over to him. Because when you do so, it restores your trust in God. It releases your problems to him. And it relieves our stress. And then you know what? It results in something wonderful. When she goes back, it says that God remembered her. God remembered her. And then she ended up being pregnant and bringing forth a son who would help usher in, usher in the Israelite monarchy and would be a foreshadowing to the kingship or the coming king of the true king, Jesus Christ. 
It was something wonderful. And that prayer is there for us to help kick off this, this book to show that this man is called by God, but that this woman was a very pious woman who loved God. Now, we think sometimes when we are in situations where there's suffering involved, for whatever reason, we think suffering is not what God has for us. And I think that's not true. I think God places us into situations where we do suffer because it will cause us to rely further on Him. We have these shattered expectations because we think life should go one way, but the reality is, is we want our will, not God's will, and we try to, try to make it sound like it's God's will and not our will. The reality is it's our will. And God has a tendency to break that will and try to shatter our expectations and then recreate it and show what he has for us. When I think of that, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you might know who she is, uh, very well known here in America, especially within Christian circles. Uh, If you don't know her story, allow me to fill in the details for you. But as a 17-year-old girl, she was swimming with some friends when she jumped into shallow water off the Chesapeake Bay. It was, I believe, August of 1967 or 1969, one of those two. And when she jumped in, it ended up shattering her spine, and she ended up becoming a quadriplegic. Now imagine being 17 years old. Your whole life is ahead of you. You'd been full of life. She rode horses. She danced. Suddenly, all of those things, all of those hopes, all of those dreams, and all of those aspirations, all your whole, entire life ahead of you seems to just halt at that moment in time. And she talks about being in the hospital bed in those subsequent months, in the despair and the depression that came over her. She even pleaded with friends to help assist her in committing suicide. She wanted to end her life. But finally, she realized that no one was going to help her, and she began to really search for answers, and she called out to a friend who knew the Bible, and, it, and she came to him and says, why does God allow this suffering? God doesn't want me to suffer. And he says, God allowed your suffering for his glory. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, she, re- she responds, and he opens and shows the scripture how God allowed Jesus' suffering to bring about the salvation of mankind. And God will use your suffering and your situation to bring about his glory. And she talks about how God had been using her and how this now has affected her life. And in in an interview with Larry King in 2004, she began to talk about how much of that had been, that suffering ends up being a blessing. And I want to share this quote uh, with you. She goes, I can't wait to get to heaven. This is what she's saying to Larry King. And I look forward to heaven so much because not only will I paint murals, because for those who don't know, she has to paint with a brush in her mouth. And she says, not only will I paint murals, but I'll have back uh, the use of my hands. And I will, I will really will jump up, dance, kick. I'll do aerobics. I don't know if that's heaven. but uh, And she goes, and I can hope I can take this wheelchair to heaven with me. I know if you had Pastor John MacArthur here, well-known pastor in California, he'd say that's not biblically correct. And she goes on. She goes, and it's not. But if I could... I would take it with me and I would be standing next to my Savior, Jesus Christ, and I would say, Lord, do you see this wheelchair? Well, before you send it to hell, I want to tell you something about it. You were right when you said in this world we will have trouble. And there's a lot of trouble being a quadriplegic, but you know what? The weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. Thank you for the bruising of a blessing it was, this severe mercy. Thank you. You ever thank God for your suffering? 
See, God sends those trials into our life to get our attention. C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone for the world to rouse us out of our, our complacency and comfortability so we will not focus on ourself, but on God. See, God will take those shattered pieces, those things that you think have broken you, and he will rebuild you to be the person he wants you to be. And that person will give him glory. And it may not be in the way that you would expect. And you might be like her. You might have to be dependent upon other people. And she was being interviewed. And they said, what's it like to have so many people that you have to depend on? And she goes, I see it as an opportunity for other people to be like Jesus, to serve. What a great perspective. See, God will take our suffering, our shatteredness, and rebuild something and rebuild you, your life, and the choices that you have made. And when you place it in his hands, he will take it and rebuild it for his glory and your joy. But you have to surrender it. You have to give it over. You have to come to God honestly. You have to come to God transparently. You have to come to God raw. And God will take you and begin to transform you as you surrender to him. As he showed the depth of his love for us on the cross, he will continue to show his love for you day by day when you trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that each one of us must cast our cares on, and on you because you care for us. Lord, you take the shattered pieces of our lives just like you did with Hannah and that you rebuilt her and used her as a great testimony and megaphone for your greatness and your majesty. Lord, that you would use this barren woman who's in this very difficult situation dealing with very distressing people And you took that deep desire, Lord, that she had, and you ended up meeting that desire. And you used that, Lord, to bring forth Samuel, your servant, who would help usher in this great and wonderful kingdom that is fully realized and seen in King Jesus. Lord, as we are continuing on in this series, as we are studying the depth of this passage in our small groups, Lord, I pray that you show yourself to be God in each one of our groups and in each one of our lives. Lord, help us to see how we can cast our cares on you, how we can trust in you. And Lord, help us to see your hand moving, even when it appears that you're hidden. Lord, we know that you're there, you're not silent, that you love us, you've given yourself for us. We ask you to use this, Lord, restore us, and give us the great joy of the Lord. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.